Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome the thinking atheist, Seth Andrews, to the show. He's an author, speaker, YouTuber, podcaster, and like me, ex-evangelical. So welcome to Mindship Podcast. Well, you're very kind. I always like to clarify, though, that I am host of The Thinking Atheist. Ah. I think uh, The Thinking Atheist is really more of an icon. It's sort of a reminder to me and everybody else to engage brain, to reason things out. And, you know, I'm no great thinker. I think I come out of a faith culture. And I want to continue to remind everybody that faith is a terrible way to figure out what's true. So let's mm. think on these things. Yes, I know. I do want to get into that. And I know you've talked about your backstory and everything on a million shows, but I wanted to compare stories with you. I was thinking, too, that we need to get some thank yous out of the way because we have some, I guess, mutual friends, kind of how we met up on Twitter just the other day. I mean, I've been following you for a long time and I really enjoy your content. But David Madison, I just did a show, Dr. David Madison, in his book, 10 Tough Things That Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Taught. Then he turned around and said, you are actually narrating the audio version. So we do have a connection there. And I think also, you know, Janice Selby, who's a good friend of mine from Canada. Uh, so, yes, I think you've had the godless moms on uh, your show as yeah. well. So, yeah, we have some mutual friends and some thank yous to <laughs> clear out of the way. That's cool. You know, whenever I saw Madison's book. It took a, a sort of an angle on the New Testament Jesus that I had not seen. And I've seen a mm. lot of content about this, but his angle was different and compelling. And, you know, the book is an easy read, easy mm. meaning it's fluid. But if you're a devout believer, it's, you know, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to challenge you in many ways. And so I pinged him and I said, hey, man, you know, if you don't have a narrator for this thing, I would love to be a part of it. And so, yeah, the audio's done. It's been submitted to Audible for final approval. Any day it should be available at audible.com. And I'm excited to see it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true. We have to get that out of the way, too, that you've got that voice, don't you? I mean, I know everyone, <laughs> well, <you're laughs> everyone says it, but I mean, you've got Thank the you. voice that we all wish that we had. You know, you've got this amazing, I, I actually listened to, well, what decided me, I bought your Audible version of your book, um, Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian, actually last night. We were supposed to do this last night, but there was a little scheduling mix-up, which I'm actually glad of now, because I was telling you before we hit record, I went out and bought the Audible version. I've been listening to it on the way to and from work just today, and it's kind of like this Seth is just this soothing <laughs> you know, <laughs> voice in your ear, easing my yeah. drive to and from work. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, you know, I, I was fortunate when, uh, you know, my voice and vocal style sort of helped me enter the world of radio back in 1990. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, a lot of us sort of sound like we graduated from the same college. You know, a lot of us mm -hmm. have that same kind of sound, you know, Q102 FM. Don't forget to be listening tomorrow morning <laughs> to Mark and Mike and Mandy in the morning. You know, we do. Absolutely. 
But, you know, I think that uh, for a movement that needs storytellers, I really think, you know, we change minds mostly through sharing experiences and telling the stories of, you know, who we are and what we're about. I came along at a good time, you know, and I was thankful that my ability to communicate sort of served the movement in that way. And, you know, it's been, gosh, uh, 12, 13 years and I'm still kicking. So Mm. I'm grateful for that as well. Absolutely. So how does a book like David Madison's fit into your sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a project. You said the thinking, you're not the thinking atheist. You're yeah, you're yeah. just the voice of the movement or something like that. But one thing I appreciate about your approach is obviously you're, you could be an angry atheist and maybe you were at some point. I don't know. We could get into that, but how does that fit into it's, it's kind of debunking Christianity, but as you say, it's not a, a polemic. I don't think against Christianity is it like, it's a very easy read. At least in the first half, it, it isn't yeah. as much. You know, the first 10 chapters are, you know, a dissection of mm. the New Testament with challenges to go deeper. And then in the last portion of the book, the final two chapters really start to get a little edgier and, and say, come on, you know, come on, really? let's take a really <laughs> good. But, uh, you know, I'm, I, I want to be a part of projects that speak to me. And I also know, and, and I don't mean this in any sort of an egotistical way, I think I've just been fortunate to, to have a relatively large footprint in the movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a, an audience in place and I've established that audience. We've become quite a community and family over the last 12 years. And, and so when I know that my participation might be able to give a signal boost to a worthy project whenever possible, I do try to do that. I get a lot of requests. I mean, I get a lot of requests. So read my book. Hey, can you check out my 400 pages? Or can you watch sure. my movie? Or can you you know, do this or do that? And, and I just don't have the bandwidth for that. But I do what I can. And when I see you know, David Madison's project being such a worthy one, just like I did with Dr. Joshua Bowen, who had written the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 1. I pinged him and I said, this is amazing. Uh, do you need a narrator? And of course, that ended up being a massive project. I think that was like 11 hours and 45 minutes of recorded audio, much of it in Sumerian or me trying to learn to speak Sumerian words. I was say, do you know Sumerian just off the top? No, of I don't know Sumerian. <laughs> we, you know, we, I did more phonetics and pronunciation emails <laughs> and phone calls over the course of three or four weeks. It was amazing. But, you know, wow. I like Dr. Hector Garcia's alpha God was uh, a mm-hmm. great exploration into the human primate and our violent gods that are so often male deities. Why does that happen? And how does it relate to our evolved nature? And, and uh, you know, Lee Verveen's The Kafir Project. I mean, if it's one of those things that really speaks to me and it's um, a good fit, sometimes if, if I'm asked or I may actually ask the, those involved, hey, you know, what do you need? How can I help? Hmm. And uh, as, as in with uh, Josh Bowen, his book, you know, it was out there. But when I was able to sort of lend my voice and my name to it and, and integrate it into the work here, it just went to, you know, another level and, and everybody wins, you know, it's just a win-win yeah. for all of the parties involved. And that's really what I want. I, I think, you know, we, we do what we can, where we can. And if I have the opportunity to benefit then I want to, I want to do that whenever mm. I can. It's so ironic, isn't it? Cause the, the verbiage that you're using, I mean, we used to use that language in Christianity, 
I want to help other people. It's all about community and we yeah. all should win. Isn't that ironic that those same values still resonate, but you're not promoting Christianity <laughs> anymore, you know? It's a human thing. A lot of yeah. people talk about uh, the, some of the things that we do as atheists, whether it's getting together at a convention or we have... Um, you know, some special event, or we enjoy communal music, or we have an inspirational speaker or, or whatever. And I've heard people, you know, they'll frame that, well, you just went to atheist church as if church owns those things. And that's just not remotely true. The church is amazing at community. The church has had thousands of years to hone the processes. You know, it's why some of the Sunday assemblies actually emulate church models for those types of things, because they're they've developed a pretty effective model, you yeah, know, but, something but there. the best things that we enjoy and that the church sort of imbues into its, um, into its model, those are just human things, person mm -hmm. to person, human to human, voice to voice, you know, eye to eye, touch to touch, human contact and human support through difficult times, sharing life experiences together uh, uniting for common goals so that we can go out and make the world a better place. This isn't a religious thing. This is a human mm -hmm. thing. And I think mm -hmm. we as atheists, you know, we're finally starting to wake up that we're not being religious when we do those things. We're being humans and the church just grabbed it and co-opted it and said they own it, but it doesn't mean they do. Yeah. Spiritualized it. Yeah, yeah. it's true. They have sort of the prepackaged community. And that's one of the things I've obviously many people have said, haven't they, that you can walk into any church pretty much and you'll be welcomed. You'll be, uh, I mean, some don't, but you know, and that's, that's one thing, I guess they do well, maybe up front anyway, <laughs> to get sucked in. And then some of the toxicities. Uh, some of them later. have welcome ministries. They sure, teach absolutely. you, you know, we're, we're going to have the coffee here and here are the sweets and donuts. And, mm. you know, here's how you hold yourself. Don't cross your arms. That's a defensive posture. Make eye contact. Don't use these words. Use these words instead. Make sure you, you physically touch them, shake their hand or hug them or whatever. You know, there are whole lessons, processes, classes taught in how to welcome people. And, you know, there's some benefit, I think, some utility in learning how body language works, et cetera. But so many in the church, you know, they have ulterior motive makes it sound like many of them are operating in a sinister capacity. I don't think that's mm. the case. I think they genuinely, though, they, they want people to feel welcome. So they'll stay and then come back the next week. And they want to build the church family and ultimately build the kingdom. Mm. Whereas you and I, you know, we're, I'd like to think we're friendly regardless, you know, just because, yeah. and if we want to keep somebody off the defensive and what's not, it's because we realize that they may have been through something and we want mm -hmm. to encourage them to live an authentic life. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but I don't think it's quite the same. Mm. It's so amazing. Is that the longer you've been out of the church, I don't know what your experiences are, but I've been out for probably 10 or 12 years. And someone told me once, they said, in order to understand how people saw you, when you were an evangelical, you should find someone who's never been religious in their life. They have never had any exposure to church or Christianity or religion and explain what you used to believe and just watch the reaction on their faces. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I was telling a friend of mine the other day, I was telling her about me growing up as a kid in a fundamentalist church, which it sounds like you did as well. And just <laughs> watching the reaction on her face, talking about harvest parties instead of Halloween's and you know, all those kind of things. We, we aped everything the world had, didn't we? But it was somehow 
sanctified and we were supposed to bring our non-saved friends and family. So there was always that missional element to it, wasn't there? It's a reinforcement culture. Everybody mm-hmm. around you talks like that, thinks like that, acts like that, and it becomes your like normal. You. I did a, a speech called The Copycats that addressed some of what you were just speaking about, aping what's going on in the culture, mimicking mm-hmm. what's popular. And that's why when I was in Christian radio, whenever there was a pop song that was hugely popular, there was a, an artist, a sound, a look, an image that really took off. You wait six months, there was a Christian equivalent of it that would pop up. You know, we had so Phil Driscoll. He sounded like Joe Cocker. If you liked mm-hmm. uh, Paul McCartney, we had Phil Kagey. If you liked uh, Wilson Phillips, we had a band or a trio of women called Sierra. And we had all of these uh, sort of Christian versions thinking, well, you know, if you like the worldly version, you'll love the Jesus yeah. version. There's we weren't original. For everybody. <laughs> yeah, so we, we were just essentially copycatting everything that was going on. Mm. And poorly, quite often, we just did. Yeah. It, was, it was a pretty bad carbon copy. It's so But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I think uh, mainstream contemporary Christianity is desperate for legitimization you know to to be accepted in the mainstream it was sort of the holy grail when i was in christian radio to see a band who would do what we call crossover Mm -hmm. meaning that you didn't just get airplay on the christian music top 20 but you might get crossover airplay on the american top 40 and secular Mm -hmm. radio pop rock radio stations around the country and uh, the rare occasions that happened it was like this huge victory you know And we felt like we were sending the message of the kingdom out into the world, man. You know, (laughs) we were pretty proud of ourselves. Yeah. The Michael W. Smiths and Amy Grants of the world. Well, now you, you and I are pretty similar in age. We're only a couple of years apart. So you obviously grew up and you were in radio. You knew that the stripers of the world, those kind of bands. See, I was a Christian metal band guy in Seattle. I grew up in Seattle. So I played drums for about 10 or 12 years we were, we tried to be striper, you know, because yeah. they were the, they were, like you said, they were a big crossover, but they had number one legitimate MTV hits of their albums or, or hit singles, you know? So we were so proud of yeah. striper for that very, exactly the same reason you just articulated. That's amazing how it works. We felt yeah. legit. We felt legit. Yeah. Like here we are. We're no longer, you know, the, uh, the bargain basement special were not just mm-hmm. the also rands. Now we're out there playing with the big boys. Yeah. We felt like we, we yeah. joined the major leagues. We were, know? yeah, you said six months, but we always felt that we were at least five years behind the time. <laughs> as, <far> as, <laughs> as soon as music changed, then and what happened to us, you know, when we, we started getting a following in the, we were playing up and down the West coast. And then the, the whole grunge scene exploded in Seattle in the early nineties. And metal was just gone literally just you know how music is just click of a switch man and it was gone so i went off to bible college and that was it man you know so it's just amazing how this stuff works but um i was thinking too now you grew up in a fundamentalist background similar to me um this is why i'm about halfway into your book maybe two three hours in and i'm thinking okay i can resonate with what seth is talking about because you're telling the story about growing up in oklahoma and but you just sort of imbibed the cultures, the the values of the Christian nationalism and the Rush Limbaugh's and all that kind of stuff. Um, how did that work? Because you say you inherited this worldview. Um, how how can you describe that for us in terms of this sort of inherited view that you sort of received, I guess, from your parents, your church, and all that? Yeah. Well, my mother and father had sort of uh, 
downloaded their religious beliefs mm. into me. And we were just sort of told, this is what you believe. I mean, we were told we have a choice, but not, we didn't have a choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we didn't toe the line, if we really challenged and asked the hard questions and rejected, I mean, they, there would have been pandemonium. It would have, my dad would have been a, uh, just, he would have melted down <laughs> uh, and my mother would have as well. <clears throat> but I, along those lines, because you are filtering everything through that religious lens, then everything else is informed by it. So how I felt about uh, non-Republicans, well, that was filtered through my religion because non-Republicans are more likely to be non-Christians and they are more likely to abort babies, which makes them, you know, baby killers. This was the language I used at the time, you know, those abortionists, they're trying to there, there is an, a waging war on sacred life and the human soul created by God. I was a Christian nationalist. I really felt like we were the greatest simply because we were. Loved my country, not because I had really determined its merit, but because, hey, this is where I was born. Man, this is, you know, I, I love it or Perfect. leave it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, right to die issues. I disagreed with that because it's God's decision, death penalty. I kind of had an eye for an eye kind of attitude mm -hmm. about that. Drugs and, you know, all these other things, reproductive choice. They were all filtered through my religious lens. And, uh, and man, that's easy to do when you start with the God answer with a capital A and you embrace it wholeheartedly and everybody else around you is that way. And I was a teen activist, you know, I was a mm -hmm. spokesperson for youth for Christ. And I was out there on the front lines on stage, leading school chapels and in student council and, and speaking before crowds about my faith, you know, th that feeds the ego. You feel like you're a crusader, man, mm -hmm. that you're making a difference. You get attention. You're affirmed constantly. There's a probably, you know, 50 gears in that machine as to how it all works. And uh, I think ultimately I come back to that word affirmation. It's constant affirmation. Hey, you're doing great. This is what you've been called to do, playing to your gifts. You will be rewarded in heaven. And it's really hard to step off that hamster wheel, man. It's really hard to, to give that up in favor of a much more complex and often messy world. Well, how much in terms of your own religious indoctrination, do you feel like you've kind of had to recover from? Because it's ironic, as I just bought your book, I thought, well, I'm going to start it this morning when, I, when I'm heading to work because uh, I want to get a couple of good hours in before I talk to you tonight. But I'm actually right in the middle of Dr. Marlene Winnell's book, Leaving the Fold, which is also yeah. on Audible. And I know she was just on your show not too long ago. I've had her on as well. And it struck, struck me that when I got to the chapter on, she talks, I think it's chapter six, where she talks about, what happens to adults who were raised in a fundamentalist context in terms of the, the psychological effects, the religious trauma, it really hit me, you know? So I was thinking, well, I want to ask Seth that. Do you feel like it did, you know, did you suffer religious trauma syndrome? Did you, you know, go through any of those things that you had to rebuild as an adult? Yeah. When I, in the 18 months that I was really committed to, finding out if it was real and if it was mm -hmm. true. And I think I knew the answer long before I admitted I knew the answer. You know, I, I didn't take a year and a half. I think I, I, over the course of time, had began to really realize there's some huge red flags here, you know. But uh, it, was a, it was a pretty rough time in my life. I was coming out of a marriage and, and I, uh, you know, I was dissatisfied that the 
employer that I work for largely served churches. And, uh, you know, what happens if all this is not true? I mean, what happens to me, my life, my career, I'm getting kind of long in the tooth to start again. What in the world would I ever do with myself? You know? Mm. And, uh, I was terrified of hell. I had been raised to believe, you know, depart from me, you who are cursed into a lake of everlasting fire. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what if I'm wrong? What if I get this question wrong? I, I don't want to burn, you know? I, I was threatened with hell by many people who realized I was going through questions. You know, one person said uh, on my family tree said, oh, you're going to burn. Now, those are that's a quote. Exact words. And, and I had a I really had a, um, a fear about that. It kept me up at night. My gut was in a knot. I didn't know mm-hmm. who I was anymore, you know. And I asked Dr. Winnell about it. You know, I'm like, it's not like I escaped Islam in a Middle Eastern country where I I feared for my life and any of those really serious things. But it it was very difficult in a lot of ways. You know, does that qualify as trauma, Dr. Winnell? I mean, (laughs) am I being overly dramatic? Yeah, she'd be the one to know. And she, you know, was very kind to talk about how trauma comes in in so many different forms. But it took me a while to get past that, even after I knew rationally that there was no God, Christianity especially was false. It took me another couple of years to really get over the emotional aspect of fearing hell, Mm. eternal torment, the writhing and the screaming and the flames. Mentally, rationally, I had to will myself through my hell fears. And that went on even as I was getting into the thinking atheist community and starting the show, I, it took me a while and some people never get out. I think some people, even though they know in their mind that there's no reason to believe in, and it's hugely immoral, they still are so scarred and so terrified. They've been just indoctrinated with fear that they wrestle with it for the rest of their lives. I think it's one of the reasons that people like us do what we do, right? To try to encourage other people that, Hey, you're not broken and it's okay. And a worthy God would have never created a freaking torture chamber in the first place. Right. It's so true. Well, one of the things that hit me, there's a lot of nuggets I'm getting out of the book, leaving the fold. One of the things that she said that really struck me, I thought, Oh man, this is good. I've got, I can't bookmark it because it's on audible (laughs) and I'm driving to work. But she said, When you actually look at Christianity, what is it or who is it that we're being saved from? We're not necessarily, it's not necessarily that we're being saved from hell. We're being saved from God. That's the real problem. And she said, you know, you look at the verse where Jesus says, don't fear the flames of hell. Essentially fear the one who can send you to hell. That's the one you should really be afraid of, which kind of takes us back around to David Madison's book. So many of the tough sayings of Jesus, I mean, Christians not, not only do they not uh, follow it, they can't, you know, that's the hugest irony of the whole thing. You can't apply that. They don't go around while well, some do telling people that they're going to hell. Yeah. It's, it's a huge disconnect. Well, there's a, um, I asked Dr. Winnell about, if you look at the relationship that believers have with Yahweh, Jesus, mm-hmm. it's really uh, an abusive relationship. It, it's a it really lot is. like domestic abuse yep. where God says, you're unworthy. You get your worth from me. Obey me. You serve me. 
Um, don't ever disobey me. If you do, you may get hurt and it will be your fault. Whatever you do, do not leave me or mm-hmm. I will severely punish you. I mean, this is language of abuse. Exactly. Uh, as far as living a literal Bible, I wrote in, um, let's see, was it in Confessions? I think maybe it was about a comedian. His name is A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. Oh, yeah. He decided for a this. year that he was going to go and like try to live a literal Bible to see how that works. And he very quickly came to the realization that if he tried to live the literal Bible, he would go to prison before doing all these horrible things that were commanded. Yeah. So he had to make all these adjustments, just like everyday <laughs> believers, Christians, they have to yeah. make all these adjustments. So that, uh, you know, they don't end up harming other people or themselves. That says mm-hmm. a lot about biblical living. It's so true. Biblical literalism. And of course, I haven't gotten to the point in your book yet, but you talk about this sort of dominionist. You were a Christian dominionist. You believe that the earth was for Christians and we needed to Christianize certainly America, if not the world, which is the thrust of dominionism, isn't it? And you think, okay, well, where does that fit into this whole project of you, you being the thinking atheist? Are you also taking a stand against, you know, sort of the Christian right, the dominionist Christianity that we're seeing so much in America? Of course, allied closely with the four years of Trump and Trumpism, that hasn't gone away just because Trump's out of office, has it? Well, I've taken a lot of heat for my political points of view. I, mm. I used to be a Fox News Christian. I was mm. that guy. I was Newsmax. I was Rush Limbaugh and Coulter, Sean Hannity. Yep. Uh, I was that guy, you know. And uh, once I stepped away from the faith, I had to go back point by point and reverse engineer how I saw my value system and realized that uh, a humanist position was really the antithesis of much of what I had once believed. Once you remove religion as an informer of those views, then, you know, a whole lot changes. And so I'm now I'm I'm pretty good lefty. You know, I'd like to Mm -hmm. think I take it situation by situation, case by case. But Time and again, when it comes to issues like reproductive choice, the legalization of drugs, foreign policy, right to die issues, the death penalty, et cetera, I'm just a, I'm a liberal, you know, and I'd like to think that's because I'm a humanist and my atheism does inform my humanism. If you believe that uh, you don't believe in a God, but you believe then that human beings must solve each other's problems because there is no deity to intervene. You know, that I believe is that that humanist position does require on being a little more sensitive socially and and, uh, caring more about other people and seeing not just the United States, but the USA as part of the world. And we Mm -hmm. see Americans not just as these sort of, uh, you know, superior things that they're supposed to be, but they're part of a larger and and equal human condition. And, uh, you know, beyond that, I didn't I used to think it was arrogant that to think that humans could affect the climate. Oh, come on. You know, there's no way we pithy humans could ever have any deleterious effects on the, the climate of the planet, which would cause other problems. And even if, even if we did, Jesus is going to arrive right. in six weeks and, it's all and gonna sweep burn, baby. up. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he's going to, he's going to take us away. So it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. All the resources here, therefore our use, God provide him, whether it's plant, animal, whatever, so, you know, I think it's a way of, of sort of getting out of responsibility free card. You know, it's it's a way to, for us to play a card that keeps us from really having to take responsibility. And it fosters uh, short term and often very destructive thinking. 
And I was, I'm glad to have walked away from that Christian dominionism, this idea that we own everything and everybody else is just renting. Mm. You know, that's a prison, man. I'm glad to be free of it. My world is much better today. When we return from this conversation with Seth Andrews, we're going to get into this issue of dominionism and how it has impacted upon people who don't necessarily believe in the values of evangelical Christianity. As we say, you may have walked away from dominion theology, but it isn't walking away from you. We're going to get into this issue of the Texas abortion law, this draconian law that's just been passed. Will it be upheld in the courts? We're not sure. In fact, since that conversation, we've heard that the DOJ, Merrick Garland, is actually suing the state of Texas to stop the law because it's unconstitutional on multiple levels. So we're going to get into that when we come back. As you can hear, I've been battling a cold, so my voice is a little bit rough. So I will keep this short, otherwise my voice might give out. just wanted to mention what's coming up here in the next few episodes on MindShift Podcast. I've already had a fantastic conversation with Kurt Anderson returning guest. He was on the show a little bit ago as we talked about his book, Fantasyland. And it was there that I heard that he had a sequel to that book, which is called Evil Geniuses. So I said, if I read the book, will you promise to come back and talk about Evil Geniuses, which he did. So we had that conversation just the other day. That is the next actual episode that's going to drop. And I finally heard from Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. That episode is coming up just in a little bit here on her show, and then I'm going to release the second half. So after Kurt Anderson, I'm going to be releasing that other half of the conversation that Rachel and I had after we finished the part for her show. So that is finally going to drop here, which I'm really excited about. That was a fantastic conversation. And then I just wanted to mention, too, some really cool stuff that's been happening. We have taken the break for the summer We've had our MindShift Zoom calls. Normally, we have them once a month along with our patrons-only calls. We just had our first patrons-only call on the 12th of September, the first one we've had since we took the summer off. It was absolutely amazing to get in touch with everybody again, touch base, see how people are doing. We had a really good chat, really good conversation. And then we have got, uh, on the 26th of September, we've got David Johnson. He is of the Skeptics and Seekers podcast, and he was on the show a couple of months ago. We talked about the history of the church and racism in America. That was an absolutely fantastic conversation, and I'm so looking forward to bringing David in and having him meet the people in the group. And then I'm really excited to announce in the month of October, on the 24th of October, we have got Frank Schaefer. He's going to be dropping in. In fact, we did a really, just an amazing chat with Frank about a month ago. A bunch of us got an advanced copy of his book, and we did a Zoom call with him for about an hour, almost an hour and a half, talking about his new book. And that's going to drop. And also, I'm going to be talking to him for a standalone podcast about his book. So some really cool stuff with Frank Schaefer coming up. I'm so excited. I love Frank, and I love what he's doing with his Facebook Live events and Zoom calls and all that. So I'm super excited to be helping and promote his new book. I've read through it. It's just amazing. So look for that coming up with Frank Schaefer as well. So let's get on back into the conversation with Seth Andrews as we pick up this theme of dominionism, the Texas state abortion laws, and where all that's headed as we continue our conversation with Seth Andrews, the host of The Thinking Atheist. However, if you lived in Texas, you're not free of it. And that's that's a, a brilliant case study, isn't it, of this very thing that you just described, whereby 
okay, there's this, this incredibly draconian restrictive abortion law that's just been passed. Now, whether or not it's going to hold up in the courts, we don't know yet, but okay, so these guys have passed a law and it's it's kind of that dominionist worldview, isn't it? We are just going to force through legislation this morality on every citizen of the state of Texas. So you could say, yes, I've walked away from a dominionism, but it, it hasn't walked away from us, has it? And, no. and if, if Texas succeeds, I mean, many other states are looking at that and saying, okay, if that goes through, we're doing the same thing. I mean, they've already tried in some other states, you know, so this seems to be this agenda, doesn't it? Well, when we see that Christianity is losing the culture war among the general population, evangelicals are on the decline, the nuns or non-religious are on the rise, people are less and less interested in religion. We're seeing a growing secularization. Well, we knew that the Christian evangelicals were not going to go quietly. We knew that their freaking out would translate into some very destructive behavior, and that's exactly what has happened. What's interesting about Texas is essentially with these $10,000 fines among the citizenry for turning other people in for enabling an abortion, they are essentially the courts have put in place a model for this weird Christian vigilante justice. It's really scary. And I, you know, I, I thought we were polarized six months ago, but you know, the level of polarization that's going to happen over the abortion issue, seeing the courts weaponized over the culture, which has been the long-term goal of this hardcore Christian right for so long. I mean, you got to hand it to them. They have, they've been well-organized, they're well-funded and they're just clever to the point of, you know, doesn't matter if they're lying or not. doesn't matter if they misrepresent abortion or not. It doesn't matter if they misrepresent their uh, political or ideological opponents or not. They have at least in Texas, at least temporarily won this particular battle. I don't think the war is over, but uh, certainly the war for the Supreme Court looks like that's been settled on the order of decades, and it really does kill a part of your heart to see it happen. Mm, absolutely. Well, and that, as you say, that's been their long-term plan, hasn't it? I talked to Frank Schaefer just as Amy Coney Barrett was being nominated and then shoved through you know, minutes before the Trump election and all the rest of it, oh, the the false re-election or the rigged re-election, I should say. Yeah. But, you know, he was saying, of course, I'm sure you've, you're aware of his work. You probably have had him on, I'm sure. But uh, him and his dad famously were part of the starting the anti-abortion movement back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he's now hugely regretful of all that. But he said, look, I mean, this they've been this is their goal. Once they've stacked the Supreme Court now, he said, I, I can predict you'll see states, you'll see things like this because they know if and when it does end up at that Supreme Court level, it'll probably get upheld. So surely that must have been Texas's game plan by waiting until, you know, they've got a Supreme Court majority. I think it's the deceit that really, and the lack of education on the issue mm. that really bothers me beyond, I mean, beyond the Christian nationalist, anti-constitutional, anti-human rights overreach mm. that they are, are hugely guilty of. I didn't have any education about reproductive systems beyond, you know, a man and a woman get together and she gets pregnant. Nine months later, there's a kid. And in my mind, everything that happened between now and then was, it was a baby, right? It's a soul. It's a baby. It's oh, a yeah. Human being. Viable. Human and it, being. But I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, how this cluster of cells would develop or when fetal cardiac activity begins or brainwave activity begins or what a morning after pill does or would even look like. I wasn't all that interested in 
whether or not a woman was able to choose because I thought, well, at the end of the day, it's a human life that should have the ability to decide, but can't. So, oh, look, I'm going to go be the hero and decide for the baby, protect the baby. So plays Mm -hmm. back into that hero narrative that we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. Right. And, uh, you know, when I finally started to get into, well, how do these reproductive processes work? I mean, beyond the fact that the overriding question is, is it anybody else's business? The answer is no. Right? It's the, the mother's uh, choice alone, really. But uh, understanding that we're not talking about a person. You know, the questions of personhood, I think, are important and necessary. But especially when we're talking about what Texas is talking about in the first six weeks, eight weeks, you know, we're not talking about a human being, certainly not one with a soul. We're talking about a cluster of cells that have yet to become or develop into a human being. And uh, to sort of pull the plug on reproductive choice across the board, I think is just a massive, massive overreach. And I'm tremendously discouraged. I'm discouraged by my own state's uh, Oklahoma's approach to it, Arkansas's having its issues, Mississippi, uh, they imposed a draconian ban. I think it's been two years, 25 white guys decided they mm. were going to essentially vote to make the decision for all the women of Mississippi. And all I know is, is that despite our challenges, we can't stop kicking. We got to continue to fight, sound the alarms, tooth and claw. We're going to have to go out there and try to mm-hmm. reverse some of the damage that's being done and stop these people. That's shocking, isn't it? I mean, that that is probably the enduring legacy of the Trump era, isn't it? All the damage he did. Of course, if you're a Trumpist, he, he was the best president we've ever had, you know, but uh, how does that even happen? Right. Yeah. He, he appointed so many judges that that's probably his biggest legacy, isn't it? I think I look at like I, I knew there was a demographic of people that would respond to kind of an authoritarian cad, mm-hmm. some charismatic dude who made you know, full of bravado who would go up and chest dump and make great claims. And they would fawn and say, oh, he's so wonderful. I knew there was, there were some people that would do that. I was monumentally naive. I had no idea that we'd see tens upon tens of millions of Americans do it. I had no idea that we lived in a culture where we'd see these, I see them now, these gift shops on the corners with Trump paraphernalia, the symbols of his name, the flags waving in the air. I've seen vehicles decorated with trump and has got a muscle you know body body on him and whatnot he's the big hero now there are a lot of reasons for that too many to get into on this show but a lot of it speaks to a lean by evangelicals into authoritarianism Mm. you know they they're willing to surrender the constitution if it serves their guy in what they consider to be their godly purpose hey you know as awful as we know he is when we're really being honest you know, sure, he stands in contrast to the best teachings of Jesus, but at least he's not the Democrats. At least he's not a socialist. At least he's pro-life, quote-unquote pro-life. And there's a host of rationalizations in place to excuse the awful. I'll tell you this, though. These people, if they had been raising a son and that son had done a tenth of the stuff that Donald Trump had done, they'd be horrified. Exactly. You know, going in and gawking at teen girls at Miss Teen USA. Oh, my God. That's what, what's the matter with you? Who mm-hmm. taught you? I taught you better than that. Mm-hmm. Vengeance is mine. Trump said he would get vengeance on his enemies. A Christian yep. parent would say vengeance belongs to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Greed is bad. And yet you look at the gold gilded life of this extremely yeah. money hungry man, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Cruelty and bullying. 
right? I bullied somebody on the playground today. He was weaker than me and I conquered him. A mother would be terrified. She'd be yeah. like, I, I didn't raise you this way. This disgusts me. Yeah. You need to be a better man than this. But if they see it in Donald Trump, that switch flips. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you know, at least he's strong. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I knew there was a shade of it. I had no idea. It's as epidemic as it mm -hmm. is. I am genuinely palpably terrified for the future of the United States in the decade ahead. Mm -hmm. I am really scared for us. So. It's true, isn't it? And I think there's some, obviously, there's been some, a lot of really good books written during the Trump era. You think of like Kristen Cobes, Dumay, Jesus and John Wayne. You know, yeah. she talks about that toxic evangelical masculinity that was way, way in place way before Trump. You talk about in your book, guys like Rush Limbaugh, even Ronald Reagan. You know, Fox News, Roger Ailes, these people all have paved the way for Donald Trump. Um, Christian nationalism, that was, you know, Perry and Whitehead and taking America back for God. They said that was the single most important factor in people voting for Trump was Christian nationalism. So you start to put all those pieces together. This was a long time coming. It's not just a, a one off phenomenon, was it? I've got Dr. Dumay coming on the show in a few mm. weeks uh, to talk about that book, Jesus and John Wayne and you know, yep. the Christ as warrior narrative mm -hmm. that is fed into so many of our heroes. You know, our, if you're a Christian nationalist, you don't like messy heroes. You like good, clean cut, black, white thinking, no nuance, right? You're going to go in America first, everybody else second mm -hmm. and love it or leave it. And you sort of speak and act in these weird bumper stickers, <laughs> getting into complex things is it's uncomfortable. It requires time and energy and patience and, and thoughtfulness. And this is not an attribute of Trumpistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, I, I think too, with the internet and how it has played and the agents of disinformation have been able to weaponize the internet. We're getting into the era now where we see the deep fake videos. So now if you see somebody say and do something, who knows if they actually said and did that thing, I'm even more terrified about the future, you know, because yep. now you can't trust your eyes and ears. It's going to get even worse. In Absolutely. The well, and then you throw in things like QAnon. That's a yeah. whole nother discussion, isn't it? Conspiracy yeah, I theories thought about that. and all that. If I can jump in. It, it, yeah. I, I said to uh, someone, I was talking to, um, I think it was Dr. Andy Thompson and Dr. Uh, I think it was John Watney. Uh, we were talking about Christianity itself is a conspiracy theory okay it so is, it is <laughs> if we see people who are deeply religious in christianity we ask ourselves why do they gravitate to the QAnon conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of reasons that they do that but i think one is that they've been predisposed to believe in a conspiracy theory because christianity itself you know god puts together a plan which is sabotaged by the evil one and mm -hmm. now he maneuvers. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's out there in the dark behind every rock trying to thwart God's plan. We must be vigilant. A jihad is coming. There will be a great war. Mm -hmm. And then the Satan dispatched, and then we will go off in this. And so it's this massively conspiratorial tale. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're prime in Christianity to believe a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes along with a wackadoodle story about Democrats drinking the blood of babies to sacrifice to Satan, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Adrenochrome. <laughs> if you already believe that there's a Satan and you already are primed to think that God's a Republican, it's not that big a leap to jump into QAnon conspiracies mm -hmm. wholeheartedly.
And so I think it's another reason that we have to continue to try to criticize and dismantle these religious claims because they provide the foundation for many of the conspiracies that are built Mm. on top of them. It's true. I was thinking when you were describing that conspiratorial era of Christianity, there was a study done by the University of Groningen. I don't know if you saw this, but they've, they've shown there's a causal link between people who believe in, for example, young earth creationism and conspiracy theories for that same kind of logic. You know, they, in air quotes, don't want you to know the truth, which yeah. is that the earth was actually created six to 10,000 years ago. And it goes on from there. Those people are more likely to believe that the moon landings were fake and, you know, uh, conspiracy theories, QAnon, they're buying straight into it. Um, and that's why I appreciate your approach, because you know, you, you, I think we have a lot in common in the sense that we have this sort of pastoral teacher kind of ethos to the way we approach topics, doing the research, helping people think. Because, of course, you did that one on the satanic panic, which is kind of QAnon 2.0 is now the old satanic panic. But over here in this country, there's a, there's a, a woman named Jeanette Archer. I don't know if you've heard of her, but mm-hmm. she's coming out just in the last few weeks. Well, she's gaining traction. She claims to be a victim of satanic ritual abuse. And she says there's these global pedophiles that are harvesting children's adrenochrome. <laughs> like, wow. oh my God, we're this is they they were just blocking down in London just a couple of weeks ago where the Tower Bridge is. They blocked traffic. They were in front of number 10 Downing Street accusing Boris Johnson of being one of these, you know, global pedophiles. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, Seth Andrews did a thing on the satanic panic. This is all coming back around. Well, and the satanic panic never ended. I was uh, interviewed for a a Blumhouse documentary called Fall River, where they got into the Fall River murders of 1979 and 1980 in Massachusetts. And it was blamed at that time on the satanic influences, satanic ritual sacrifice, Mm -hmm. these horrible murders. And it turns out that was a freaking smokescreen. It wasn't about Satanism at all, but everybody bought the story and a conviction came down because of that story. And, uh, you know, so when we talk about the satanic panic so often, we talk about late 70s, 1980s, mm-hmm. 1991 through 95, et cetera. But the satanic panic is alive and well. All you have to do is look at these mega pastors. You know, you look at people like Copeland and Paula mm-hmm. White and Franklin yeah. Graham. I mean, they're Ray always Lock, flipping yeah. And I think <laughs> about these people, you know, how much confidence do they really have in their God? If God is so powerful that he could defeat Satan with a flick of his finger and God, our, my God would never be worried. My God, the victory is already won. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird hypocrisy when you see mm-hmm. them who in one breath say that that God has already won the victory and it's all set in stone and Satan has no power here. And then they spend the other, all the other time freaking out because Satan apparently has so much power. I don't really get that. You know, either he's defeated and he doesn't matter and God's won the victory, or maybe it's almost like those exorcisms. You ever see those things, yeah. where the, you know, the documentaries where the priest goes in and he does like a four day exorcism, mm-hmm. the power of Christ compels you. Yeah. And there's all this writhing and spinning and everything. Yeah. And I think I always thought to myself, even when I was a believer, I thought God didn't need four days to exorcise the demon. God wouldn't need all the writhing and freaking and screaming and, and moaning and carrying on. This is theater, right? I mean, yeah. it, it makes no sense to me, mm-hmm. but it's a better story. Certainly a more dramatic story. Whenever you add that sort of good versus evil plot twist, and then everybody, you know, they can join the hero side and I call it theological masturbation. I think they are genuinely <laughs> self-gratifying 
Right. They get a chance to be on the side of good. They are on the side of heroes. And then by proxy, they are heroes themselves. Mm -hmm. So it feeds that sort of sense of identity. They are the crusader in God's army going on a divine quest with eternal reward. Mm. And I can see how that would be attractive to a lot of oh, people. Oh, absolutely. Well, like you say, you'd need an enemy, whether you're talking about a cult or in Christianity, you can keep Satan as the enemy. Because I was getting into when I was studying Dominion theology, I started, I got into R.J. Rushtuni, Christian Reconstructionism. Then that branched into the Seven Mountains mandate, Dominion theology. Guys like Lance Wall now, who was teaching and you know Congress people in Washington D.C. and all these other people that got involved in that. And it's all about spiritual warfare. Then, isn't it? You've got to conquer the mountain, and sitting atop the mountain, there's a demon. You've got to crash the gates. I mean, that is hugely motivating for these for these yeah. people's followers. We've got it's all spiritual warfare. Well, and you think about the militarized language in the faith, you know, yeah. where the Bible talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the mm. sword of peace. And the wait, the shoes of peace. Uh, I don't know. I, I get them yeah. all confused, but there's like seven pieces of armor. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we are when I was a kid, we used to sing that song that I'm in the Lord's army and we yeah. would actually do oh, yeah. the marching with our hands and feet. We'd march I did in place. It too. Yeah, young children, right? Well, yep. this is militarized language. Yeah. We are soldiers. And you mentioned Striper. They had an album called Soldiers Under Command. And on the yep. front of the album, they're there in their yellow and black spandex. And they're sitting on these bands with machine gun turrets mounted <laughs> to the top of them. Um, yeah, what's that about? And I think, you know, Petra had an album called This Means War. There was yep. so much militarized language in the faith, and there continues to be, because mm. as a believer, you see it is a battle, not just a spiritual one, but potentially a physical one against the forces of Satan. And I think if you're someone like Donald Trump, et cetera, weaponizing the religion for power, there's great utility then in associating all of your opponents with the devil, right? When I was a mm. devout Christian, I really thought that someone who was a Democrat, somebody who was, who was then what I am now, wasn't just someone with an ideological difference of opinion, a different mm -hmm. philosophy or value system. I was satanic. Well, if you other someone to that degree, you have then really mobilized people to do and say things they might not otherwise do and say, to go to extremes they might not otherwise go to. So this othering of people, aligning them with the darkest forces in the universe and saying, whatever happens, fear them. Mm. Uh, don't give them a seat at the table. Be wary if they knock on your door, be, feel threatened because they might be a threat. You know? Escalation, escalation. Mm -hmm. There's so much of that going on. I'm continuing, especially in the wake of COVID and everything else, I've remained convinced that people are going to continue to get hurt. In yeah. this war against the evil one, people are going to declare a literal war, possibly at the end of a rifle. So. Mm. Well, look at Mike Lindell, Mike Flynn, Sidney yeah. Powell, Lynn Wood. These are all evangelicals <laughs> that are spreading. I mean, Trump's you look at January lie. 6th, right? Yeah. They're carrying crosses all Christian around the place. They've got, I mean, if you'd have told me that we'd see Christian nationalists smashing into our own halls of government, <laughs> building a gallows outside yeah. the Capitol. You know, and and if you told me that would happen and nearly half of the country wouldn't care, hmm. I would have thought, no, it's not possible. That, yeah. that, that's an exaggeration. People would be outraged. This is America. Mm -hmm. And how wrong I would have been. 
And that's what I mean when I say I'm genuinely afraid over the next 10 years of what will happen next. I think so, too. I mean, here it is just turned September. There's a thing that's Mike Lindell's organizing a, a strike back thing on the on the anniversary of 9-11, <laughs> where yeah. patriots need to strike back. And then I don't know if you saw this, but you got Madison Cawthorn, who's a Republican. What is he, a congressman out of, I think, North Carolina? Here's a guy who's a home Christian homeschooling graduate. He went to Patrick Henry College, which is in Virginia, which is a college specifically designed for homeschoolers to propel them into politics. So he's the poster boy. And he turns around and says, well, you know, I'd hate to have to pick up a rifle if, you know, our elections keep getting stolen. But what are you going to do? You know, and they're clapping for him. We saw (laughs) with uh, the door to door efforts proposed for the covid vaccine. What if people who weren't going out, who weren't either motivated or weren't able to logistically get out to go get vaccinated in the midst of a pandemic that's killed 4.5 million people globally? What if we brought the vaccine to them? I'm like, what a great idea, right? Mm. What a great idea. And then you see pastors who go out and they say, if someone shows up at your door with a COVID vaccine, beware, because they're not really here just for the vaccine. What they're here for is they want your guns. They want Mm -hmm. to come in and take away your guns your freedom, they were, they're coming after you and your kids, your God, your religion, your yeah. faith, all those things. The whole well, package. what happens if you prime fearful people to believe that and some poor healthcare worker shows up on their door, you know, how long before the firearms are discharged, exactly. how long before people are harmed, maimed, killed, you know, this is escalation. This is incitement. And the lack of alarm about it is, uh, I think, going to only fuel the danger. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope I'm wrong, but I mm. don't think I am. Well, and I was going to bring that up, the whole God and guns thing, you know, because it's, it's all part and parcel, isn't it? You know, here I live in the United Kingdom. I've been here about 15 and a half years. I mean, we just don't have mass shootings. We had one. I don't know if you saw this on the news about two or three weeks ago. I think it was down in Port, either down in Plymouth or Portsmouth, but down on the South Coast, a guy was mentally unhinged. And he was, he had a shotgun, which you still can legally have. You have to go through a lot of hoops. He shot his mother and then he just wandered out in the street and just randomly started killing people until he finally killed himself. But he killed about six or seven people just absolutely randomly. Whoever just happened to be there, he just shot him. But that almost never happens in this country. We just don't have guns like you guys do in the States. But yeah, then you've got the paranoia, the fear, the Trumpism, the QAnon, the NRA. I mean, it's a complete toxic mess, isn't it? Someone explain to me why a divinely protected Christian needs a Mm. firearm. Why do you have to carry an AR-15 to Starbucks? Tell me why (laughs) you have to carry a pistol to Starbucks. I don't, it's a, it's a hypocrisy culture. There are more firearms than there are citizens in this country. We have 390 million guns. You're obsessed with guns. Yeah. I mean, any round at this point, the gorilla's out of the cage, any roundup, it's no. nothing. It, it, this is not going to be solved, right? Not going to end well. And uh, and I'm not trying to be a hypocrite about it. I have a couple of firearms that I, mm-hmm. I use. I have them. I'm licensed and trained. I have a, a, a protected safe in my home that only I know the combination mm-hmm. to. But I don't carry them out. I don't. You know, yeah, I have them for target permits. shooting. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but yeah. And there are some people who are genuinely peace-loving, responsible firearms owners. I'm not talking about them as much as I'm talking about the people who seem to have aligned guns with the creator of the universe, 
<laughs> their own religious beliefs and their notions of what freedom is in the United States. If I'm not free to own an AR-15 and carry it wherever I want, then I'm not truly free. That's terrifying to me. How do you and get again, there? back to the yeah. hypocrisy of I'm divinely protected and the greatest power in the universe has my back. Well, then if that's the case, you don't need uh, you know, a high capacity magazine and yeah. a rifle you know, because you're already protected. So they really make no sense. There's, mm. It's a tragic comedy, the entire scenario. It is. But yet people are getting killed, murdered daily. Well, I don't know if it's still this way. You probably know more about this than I do. Are, is, is ammunition available in America anymore? Because I know about a year ago, you couldn't buy ammo for love yeah, or yeah. money. Oh, yeah. It There's just, a gun show exist. on every block here. I mean, you can find it. You can still buy ammo. But what's interesting is that that time when ammo... It, Here's what normally happens. Anytime there's somebody who's a Democrat who comes to power, yeah. the narrative becomes they're coming for your yeah. guns. And the gun spike, shows know there? this. Right? Yeah. The gun shows know this. And so they weaponize that and then they do just boffo sales. Mm. They sell a ton of firearms yeah. and ammunition. And of course, the Democratic president or whatever doesn't come. Obama didn't come for their guns. Biden hasn't come for their guns. You know what I'm saying? It has never happened. Mm. But what did happen during the last big scare is more people started homemaking their ammunition. Yep. Which is a thing. It's you a thing. You can make your own ammo. You can reload. <laughs> so now you got people at home who are making ammunition. And yep. I don't, I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> Where is it's this crazy. thing going to end? Yeah, it's well, crazy. I was, I was in the run up to the 2020 election. I was listening to the New York Times podcast. And they went to my hometown, which is Seattle. Now, Seattle's it's pretty liberal. I mean, I lived in Seattle, Portland, pretty left-leaning, real eclectic, real cool place. But And it's not a real gun culture city. But he was going up and down the streets of, in front of a gun store. There was a line or a queue, as we'd say in this country, literally around the block. And he just it was a roving reporter. He went down the line asking people, what are you doing here? Why are you 30, 40, 50 people deep? buying it what do you need a gun for and half of them were saying because the liberals are buying guns and the other the other half was saying it's because the trumpists are buying guns and the you know so it's just it's feeding the paranoia a lot of them said yeah. well i would have never bought a gun before but now i fucking need one you know yeah. <laughs> so. well isn't it i mean guns i i have come to the opinion that it's about an identity i mean these people yeah. have linked firearms to their identities which is just mm. a sad, a pathetic place to be. I mean, if you yeah. want to responsibly own a firearm, you are properly trained and you don't have this wild apocalyptic conspiracy. They're coming over the mountain to take everything from me, yeah. even though I enjoy more freedoms than almost anybody else <laughs> in, the, in the world kind of an attitude. Okay. I get that. You know, I mean, I, I'm amazed at, the manufactured persecution of people who mm -hmm. have so much latitude in this world. You look at the American Christian, the American white evangelical, you know, I mean, they're always like, they're, they're coming. Now they're coming. This, this is terrible. These times we're living yeah. in it. So I get specific. All right. Well, have they taken away your right to, you can still go to church. Yeah. Are there Bibles in most hotel rooms? Yeah. Is there a good chance your elected official represents your faith? Yeah. 
Are you restricted from having Bible study in your home? No. Do you have Christian radio and TV? Yeah. Is there Christian retail? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you wear Christian jewelry and get tattoos and proselytize mm-hmm. and take missions trips and do all those things? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, tell me exactly how it is your, well, uh, I, I, and they just tilt, melt down, right? These are the most uh, freaking spoiled, rotten, privileged yeah. people on the planet convinced that somehow they're persecuted, but they cannot tell you exactly how they're being persecuted. Mm-hmm. They've got it down to a science, haven't they? Because as you say, when it, when it's a Democratic president in charge, the Christian right is stoking all those fears. They're going to take your guns. They're going to take your rights. They were doing it during the COVID lockdowns. You know, talk about the so-called COVID passport. What they really want is to restrict, as you said, your right to go to church and go on mission trips and all these other things. That's what it's really, that's what this whole COVID thing is all about, man. It's all about taking your rights away as a Christian, the whole thing. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, some of that is because even the Bible says that the best Christians are the ones persecuted for mm-hmm. Christ. What do you do if you live in absolute privilege and you are not at all persecuted, but the Bible says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake? What do I do? Well, I'll just manufacture them. I mean, if I'm going to be the hero of the story, I need a villain. You know, I need a cause. And so yeah. they just make it up. They He's just an manufacture the persecution. I did a a podcast conversation with uh, a constitutional attorney named Andrew Seidel from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I've had him on. We titled the broadcast, Do We Live in a Shared Reality? Mm. And we both came quickly to the conclusion, no, 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 (laughs) we, we, I, you and I and the Christian nationalists do not share a reality. Mm. They live in Xanadu. They live off in some other place somewhere where up is down and two plus two equals five. And it's just a terrifying place to, to see mm. over from this vantage. Bizarro world, living in bizarro yeah. world. Well, I know it's getting close to an hour. You've got to go. You've got other stuff to do, but I really appreciate hanging out with you for an hour, kind of getting to know you a little bit. I wanted yeah. to say again, I also, I, like I said before, I really appreciate your whole approach because I resonate with it a lot where you're not this shrill. You could be, I suppose. I don't know if you were an, an angry atheist, but well, I have my moments, you know, I, I yeah. think anger is just, I would never tell anybody how to respond to the, well, how religion treated them, but I have my moments when I, I get, yeah. you know, good and, and fired up. off and, and I have my moments where I'm kind of a teddy bear and, you know, I think I, I run the gamut, but at the end of the day, I really, I, I think in order for us to attract people, we have to be attractive whenever mm. possible not in a disingenuous way, not in a way that's fake. But I mean, if we're going to ask people to leave this hugely attractive and, and uh, comforting religious model, may, you know, they're there, that's where their friends are, their family, the support system, that's the routines they know, it's comfort. If we're going to ask them to put all that on the bubble. What are we offering in return? Mm. I think we need to offer some positives in the human experience. We're going to have to tell them it's okay. There's room here. There's, there's a place for you. There's love and joy and happiness and purpose and, and all these things. There's more, there's got to be more to activism than mm. screw religion. Religion is stupid. Here's a meme. Here's me calling somebody out. Here's the vitriol and all that stuff. I think mm-hmm. we're going to have to do a better job of accentuating the positives and showing them that life is good on this side of the mm. fence. Life is better on this it's side better. of the fence. And if I've done any of that at all, I feel like I've, I've accomplished something. So. It's so true, isn't it? And this is, again, going back to leaving the fold. You know, Marlene Winnell says, you know, when you walk away from religion, Christianity in particular, it's so empowering because you are in control. 
of and you have to deal with the consequences for of, of whatever choices you make but at least you're not relying on god christianity it, it takes away our agency in so many ways doesn't it and it's like she said you've got to learn to enjoy life because you're responsible this is your life to live so i feel like that's definitely the journey i'm on it sounds like <laughs> you've been on that journey probably a long time before me Gail Jordan up at Recovering from Religion says it best. She just tells people there's so much more light, air, and space on this mm. side of the religion question. So true. And I think let's let's be that. Let's be the person who sounds that rings that bell. Hey, everybody, you know, yeah, I'm doing battle with fundies, and yeah, we're gonna go call out the horrible stuff. And yes, mm. we've got problems in the movement, and good luck to defining the movement. Uh, yes, we have to root out bad agents. Yes, there's drama and chaos sometimes. Yes, we're all flawed, fallible human beings. But sure. there's at the end of the day, there's just more light, air, and space over here. You mm. will love it over here. And uh, you know, if we can, if we can help uh, sort of sing that song a little more effectively, I think that's mm. probably one of the most important things we can do as activists. Really true. Well, I need to let you go. I was going to ask you before you go for maybe the one or two people that don't know where to find you. Where oh, yeah. can they get a hold of you on social media and what's your, where's your podcast handle and all that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. We're uh, uh, coming up on 600 podcasts. We started mm. in 2010. It's a show that drops on Tuesdays of every week, uh, but you can find uh, my videos and podcasts and links to uh, other atheist resources on the main website, thethinkingatheist.com. And then if you want to know more about me or my books or my work or speeches or whatever, you can go to sethandrews.com. So that's kind of a one-two punch, mm -hmm. thethinkingatheist.com and sethandrews.com. Well, listen, Seth, I'll let you go. I really appreciate talking to you. Anytime you want to come back in, please hit me up. I would love to talk to you again. It's been an honor, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.